Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind podcast. I am really excited to share this one with you because it is a subject very close to my heart. It's all about empowering birth. It is with hypnobirthing teacher and legend, actually, Catherine Graves. She was one of the first to bring hypnobirthing to the UK, and she's now trained 3,000 couples personally. She's also trained another 2,000 professionals, including lots of midwives, in her method. So we actually recorded this before I had Rose, which I have to say was very useful as a bit of a refresher for me. And if you follow me on Instagram, you will know that I had an incredibly positive and empowering birth with Rose. It was five hours and I would describe it as enjoyable. And we were at home. So hypnobirthing really helped me, but I do think it's misunderstood. So hypnosis, far from, you know, what we might perceive as stage hypnosis as running around like a chicken is really about reprogramming subconscious beliefs. And I don't know about you, but before I had Jessie, who I also had at home, I had lots of unhelpful beliefs about birth, that it was painful, that it was something that needed to be done in a very medical environment, that I wouldn't be able to handle it. So what hypnobirthing really did for me when I first discovered it four and a half years ago was that it helped me to reprogram those beliefs, to understand what they were and to actually get the knowledge and think, are those true? To question those beliefs. So hypnobirthing for me is really about knowledge. It's about empowering ourselves and it's about education. And I think it's really important for me to say I am not an advocate of home birth. I happen to have had two really positive home births, but it's definitely not for everyone. But what I am an advocate of is empowering birth. And by that, I mean that you have, and we have, knowledge that we have sought to think about the type of birth that we want and how we might educate ourselves and help our mindset in order to achieve that. And I'm not talking about having a perfect birth, I'm talking about an empowering birth. And I think the two are very, very different. Someone said to me, birth is the one event in your life that you will remember forever. And I think it's so true. It is such a monumental moment. And I think it's really important actually that as modern day women with the resources that we have available to us now, that we educate ourselves. So I have loads of friends who have had births gone totally off the preferences that they had stated before, but would still describe it as positive because they felt empowered and they felt educated and they felt calm. And I think that's what hypnobirthing gives. Now I'm going to be super honest with you here. I'm really nervous to share this episode. I don't often get nervous putting an episode out, but I am nervous putting this one out. And the reason is, is that when I shared my birth story with Rose on Instagram, I got a few messages, not many, but a few messages of quite distressed women telling me that I shouldn't share positive stories like that. 
because it's really triggering for people who had traumatic births. And it is never my intention to trigger anyone. But I do think it's really important to share this knowledge. I think it's really important to share positive stories like mine because they're not shared enough. I think we hear too much of the negative, which of course plays into those subconscious beliefs about birth I was talking about earlier. But what I would say is that if anything that we talk about or I talk about or Catherine says triggers you, then please, please, please get help. I've actually done an episode on birth trauma and birth PTSD, which I know is far more prevalent than is talked about. That is with Dr. Rebecca Moore. So that might be a really good place to start. If you feel triggered or upset by the episode, then just turn it off. Don't listen if it's painful or triggering. Turn it off and maybe have a look at that other episode and then seek help. Go to your GP who will be able to signpost you to help and support. So with all that in mind, here is the episode. I hope you really enjoy it. And if you did, as ever, we continue the conversation on Instagram. Please rate it on iTunes and send me a message. Nothing makes me happier than chatting about these episodes with you on Instagram and email. So please do contact me. Here it is. So Catherine, it is such a joy and an honour to be sat in front of you because I know your book back to front (laughs) and inside out and your methods really enabled me to go from feeling very fearful about birth to having a confident, empowered, joyful birth at home. So thank you. Very intelligent decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just chatting about it, weren't we, that it felt like that to me when I did the studies yes. around it is. But it's People say, isn't it brave? That's what everyone said to me. You're but so brave. True. It's intelligent because that's where all the logic and evidence is. Well, that is what I felt when I did all the reading. And I also did a yoga training with women from all around the world. Mm-hmm. And that was so empowering because when I said to someone in Holland, for example, that I was might be having hospital birth at that point she said oh is there something wrong yes because of course there they all have their babies at home so I had this amazing experience of you know your methods of teaching and this yoga training and yeah and it it was fantastic wonderful so I'm really and can be yes well that is what we're going to be talking about which is can birth really be this empowering experience that I had (laughs) so let's start right at the start I think most people listening to this podcast would have heard of hypnobirthing, but just to hear it in your words, what is it? It is impossible to convey everybody who actually does the course, either as a mum or training to be a teacher, the KG hypnobirthing course, always says, I didn't realise there was so much to it. It's absolutely fantastic. I couldn't understand it till after the course. I had no idea it was like this. So I'll do my best, but it's not going to be a very good best, I don't think. And also, it is a very wide term. It's not like being a doctor, which is a protected term. Anybody can set up tomorrow and say, I'm an hypnomethin teacher. So it's unregulated? Yes, it can't be. That means that not quite anybody, but people will do a perfectly good training like ours and then decide, instead of doing a proper full 12-hour training, do the course in three hours. Or people will say, I did hypnobirthing, but it didn't work. And when you inquire, all they've done is listen to an audio during labour. Or maybe just read the book. Now, reading the book can be extremely helpful and can make a very big difference. But it's not hard to believe that a 12-hour full antenatal training course is rather better. You know, you don't say, I'm a qualified midwife, having done only a third of the qualification. So it's something that we have to 
practice. Yes, and, and refine what we mean. And what is it? If someone's still listening and they're thinking, I've heard this term, they might mm. be thinking it sounds a bit hippie. What is hypnobirthing? Well, I could say it's the easiest question to ask and the hardest one to answer. And people say, well, what do you do? So you could say, well, we do breathing and visualisations and relaxations. But those have been around for probably 70 years and they're very good. But if they were that good, hypnobirthing would never have started because there wouldn't have been any need for it. So the real question is, what's different to what went before? And there are several things. The biggest thing is the work to release fear. Because just as you said, when you first became pregnant, maybe you weren't frightened, but maybe you were stressed, worried. No, I was frightened. You were actually frightened. Well, some women are petrified. I mean, the technical term for it is tocophobia, which is extreme fear of birth. But I think every woman at some point will have seen a movie or a TV show of somebody screaming and writhing around in agony, and they think that's how it is. So that work is probably of supreme importance. We sometimes use the story of the Princess of a Pea. Fairy stories are excellent for illustrating anything. I'm sure you as a mum are expert in fairy stories for your daughter, son? Daughter, yeah. Daughter. And the princess, of course, couldn't sleep because there was a pea under her mattress. Perfectly good mattress. So what did they do? They added a next mattress. And she still couldn't sleep because of this little pea. And all the children's books, you see pictures of sort of 12 mattresses and the princess climbing up on a stepladder. Only when they removed the pea could the princess sleep comfortably with one mattress. Now, if a pea is like the fear or the stress or the worry, and it's niggling at the back of everybody's minds, actually, the people in the story, what do they do? They look to the result, not the cause. It's a fairly good metaphor for anything in life, isn't it? <laughs> we could say it about our politicians even. <laughs> but anyway, the mattresses are like the relaxations and the breathing and the visualisations. And they're great. But as long as that pee is underneath, niggling, they're not going to work properly. And that pee, in, in this analogy, of course, is the fear. fear so why are, you mean, you've referred to some of it. Yes. TV... We've been quite conditioned, aren't we, that birth is yes. something painful yes. to be feared and to be survived. Yes. Rather than I think enjoyed. the conditioning in modern times is even greater because it's easier to get ideas around by television and films and things. Well, they say that the Bible started it when saying that Eve had a pain when giving birth and apparently the same word is translated for Adam as hard work, toil, and for Eve is pain, but it's the same word translated in different ways. It says something about the mental attitude of the early fathers. Then when the church took over society virtually, women who had been knowledgeable about herbs, helped women giving birth, tended to be burnt at the stake as a witch, yes. which is not a very popular occupation. So all the help that was there went. Women were supposed to have pain because the Bible said so, so nobody was there to help with herbs which might have helped you relax and the fear is building up and then it becomes a vicious spiral. That's where it all started and it's sort of gone on from there. We could go through the whole of history but it might be a bit boring. <laughs> and that's something that I wanted to talk to you about is pain. 
Because you talk about the power of language, mm-hmm. and that's another really important component part in hypnobirthing, isn't yes. it? That our brains are like computers, and when we give a them more than that, <laughs> a little bit of a brain is like a computer. The neocortex, the rest of it is far more, far more important. So tell us about the power of words in hypnobirthing, and specifically that word pain, because you talk about that. Pain is a wonderful word. It tells you exactly what it is. I have no problem with the word pain. People sometimes say you're not allowed to use the word pain in hypnobirthing, which is plain stupid, because everybody comes to a hypnobirthing class because they're afraid of pain. And then if you're not allowed to talk about why they've come there, it's sort of a bit silly. But most pain is when something's wrong, which is an excellent way of telling you that something is wrong. No problem at all. If we have muscular pain, it's generally the next day after strenuous activity. Mm-hmm. You know, you go for a 20-mile hike, you've got stiff legs. You spend the weekend painting all the ceilings in your home, you've got stiff arms. But labour pain doesn't happen the next day. So that can't be quite the same reason. So I'm about to launch into a long and complicated, well, not complicated, interesting discussion about how the muscles of the uterus and hormones work, but probably that's a bit long for a podcast. But effectively, if our mind is stressed, we produce the hormone adrenaline, which inhibits the working of our muscles. And the areas of muscles within the uterus work against each other, and these are very, very powerful muscles. So you get this battle going on, and therefore labour is less efficient. If you have muscles, instead of working with each other, working against each other, less efficient, there are more contractions, each contraction is longer, and labour goes on for longer. That was one of the most profound things. So simple. It made perfect sense. Yes. If I'm stressed, I'm going to release cortisol and adrenaline, mm. which are going to tighten up those muscles, which means that exactly as many people have experienced, becomes more painful, quote unquote. And also you're diverting the blood supply from the muscles of the uterus. Now we all know that if an athlete doesn't get sufficient blood and oxygen supply, they collapse with cramp. It's very painful. And yet, when we're producing adrenaline, because this is the fight-flight response and we're planning to run or fight, all our blood supply, all our nutrients, all our oxygen is diverted to our arms and legs, ready to run or fight. Tell us that, because this links on to the next fascinating thing that I loved learning about and I had my own experience of. Tell us about how mammals give birth and how they avoid getting into this stressed adrenaline Let's do the other side of the hormones first. Okay. If a mind's calm, we produce the hormone oxytocin. Yeah. It's been defined as the hormone of calm. It's called the hormone of love because we produce it when we fall in love, when we make love, and when we give birth just after we give birth. And it's also been described as a shy hormone. It likes privacy. You know, in general, people don't make love in public, feel you prefer a little bit of privacy for it. And when we produce oxytocin, there are oxytocin receptors in the uterus, which makes the uterus work. And we also produce endorphins, which is nature's pain relief, nature's feel-good factor. So we have a built-in system for making labour efficient and for making it comfortable in every woman's body. And when we, in that state of mind, all our blood supply, because we're not planning to run or fight, all our nutrients, our blood supply, our oxygen, goes to our internal organs, to the digestive organs, so we can snap to keep our energy up. More importantly, to the reproductive organs, to the uterus, these 
very powerful muscles which need a good blood supply in order to work well. And also, of course, through the placenta to the baby. So the baby is in a better state. So everything is working in the way it's designed to do, already designed in every woman's body. All we have to do is get out of the way and let it work. That was my experience. Yes. I wouldn't say my labour was painful. It was intense. Yes. And it was long. But I was yes. so relaxed because I was so relaxed and confident. Because you practised. Yes. You so can't just say to somebody, now relax. It's about the oh, no, least practice. relaxing things to say. So what gets in the way of this perfect system? Why do we fear. have... Fear. Mammals. About mammals. Oh, yes, mammals. Well, it's exactly what they do. They haven't got the neocortex, the thinky bit of the brain, to get in the way. So they curl up in a safe place on their own. And please, when I say that, I'm not advocating free birth and giving birth on your own. But I am advocating replicating as far as we can what our fellow mammals do who tend to give easily which is they want privacy, they want a small space, they want to feel safe, they want to feel protected. And that's exactly what we want. So it's often said that the best environment for giving birth is the best environment for conception. Conception and birth are the same events separated by time. So what do you want? You want low lights, soft music, candles, maybe a nice scent in the atmosphere and essential oil of lavender is very relaxing you want privacy you want stroking you want to feel loved and cared for exactly the same environment is the best for giving birth and the place you get that is home and that word safety is so important isn't it it's something else that you talk about and I find fascinating and I never had this experience because I never did that drive to hospital. Oh, it's but you, but you say that it's important to try and protect that environment while you do that transition mm. because you said in the book that some people can get quite far along in their labours, get mm, to hospital not. and they'll be two centimetres, but Absolutely. actually they probably would have been... They may well have been, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> because their bodies are saying, this isn't right, this doesn't feel safe and labour's contracting and stopping slowly. I was saying this morning to a very, very experienced doula, what would you say to a mum who you give all the reasons, just like you had, for having your baby at home, all the logic, and she says, oh, I'd love to have a home birth, but I feel safer in hospital. Everyone says that. And she me. said, well, you don't actually know till you're in labour, which I thought was quite a clever thing to say. So you book your home birth, and you're perfectly entitled to transfer to hospital at any time if you think you'd feel safer. Yeah, and I'm a bit of a numbers person and I like research. So mm. I did all the research. I mean, I was in the Cochrane Review. I was yes. I was looking at all the papers mm. and I understood the exact transfer time to hospital. I understood how long it might take if I was in hospital to prepare a theatre if I needed to. And I knew, actually... It's very little difference. Very little difference. Even if not the there might be a difference. Exactly. I knew, and we mapped it out, my husband and I, oh, and I we knew how far... It, well, because I was like, I'm not going into this yes. willy-nilly. I'm going into this intelligently, that word you used. Yes. And I knew, actually, I would be just as safe at safer. home. Safer. The studies yes. show that, don't they? Studies that show the outcomes are better for home birth. Yes. So you mentioned that word doula, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to flag that because a lot of people listening might not know, know what, a what that is. Can you tell us about what a doula is and some of the studies about the outcomes of birth with a doula as well? I don't know about the studies of the outcome of birth with a doula. Okay. 
I do know the studies of transfer rate, that's what puts off mums from home birth. I do not have figures of transfer rates from the KG, hypnobirthing home births. And I know it's a piece of research I need to do because for mums, that's a very important piece of information. Yeah. And I will do it. It's high on my, high on my list, but it's quite much for top, but it will very soon. So you were saying about a doula. Yes. Just a doula is somebody who is trained, not medically trained, but trained to give comfort, support, confidence to women in labour, to understand the choices she may be asked to make, the implications of her choices, so she can help a woman feel more confident and be better informed. She does not give advice, but actually when you come to it, a midwives and obstetricians don't give advice. In general, they say these are the guidelines. This is what the guidelines say you ought to do. It's a brave person that gives advice because they've put their career on the line. It's mm, a good point. And so if someone's listening, thinking, well, I've got my birth partner, why do I need a doula? If it's a well-trained birth partner, I'm not entirely sure, but you do, actually. It depends who else is with you. But your birth partner often has not been at a birth before, so doesn't have the experience. Even if they've been at your KG hypnobirthing class with you, when somebody says something that they haven't quite thought of, they don't know what to say, the sensible thing is to always take time. You hopefully have organised it so you know that your, in this country, midwife is on the same page as you, which is fantastic. But you have to bear in mind, as we tell all the people we teach, that they are very constricted by the parameters of the NHS and the hospitals. However much they would like to support you, and they do want to support you, and they certainly want to do their best for you. But if they step outside the guidelines, their career is on the line. I was at a hearing at the Nursing of a Midwifery Council yesterday, fitness to practice hearing, I was supporting a midwife. And one of the charges against her or one of the things that parents didn't like about how she had conducted the birth was she was sitting out of sight. They wanted to feel she was there and doing things for them. Now, we all know that that's counterproductive. But their perception of what birth is like... Oh, she was a wonderful midwife. And the other thing, they felt she had delayed too long before cutting the cord, obviously not understanding that the baby is still getting its oxygen through the cord, so you don't want to cut it too soon. You want to leave the cord intact until it's learned to breathe, which we all know now, and for many years was completely overlooked. That's the sort of jeopardy that a midwife is in, daily. And I think, from, well, I'm sure the mums I need teach need to understand the pressures on their midwives, and then they can all work together as a team, mm. um, and it works much better. And this is an important point because... You talk a lot, and this is something that I learnt about options. And I hear it, you know, I didn't experience this because, you know, I didn't go to hospital. I actually yes. had an independent midwife, so I didn't experience it. The very best if you can possibly afford it. Yeah, I'm very lucky. It's privileged. I could yes. afford it. But many people could afford it, but don't realise their priority. Anybody who's paid for a new kitchen, a new car, a wedding, 
holiday of a lifetime can afford an independent midwife? Well, I would say it's the best money I've probably ever spent. Absolutely. It's priceless. Well, what it gave me was a wonderful birth, a wonderful Mm. transition to motherhood. Mm. I felt incredibly supportive before, during and after. Mm -hmm. They came every day for two weeks afterwards. It was expensive, and I am privileged that we had that. But, yeah, for us it was a priority. But even with independent midwives... They vary. Of course they do. Everybody varies. Hypnobirthing teachers vary. So one needs to do a little bit of research. Yes. But what I wanted to ask you about was options. Because Mm. it can feel, I've heard from friends, particularly around interventions, around breaking membranes, inductions, you know, language like we're going to do. An experienced person describe induction of labour as a crime. Wow. Yeah, but we've got these guidelines, haven't we? So what does but someone it's not do? Always the guidelines. The guidelines say you don't induce for big babies, you don't induce for small babies, and various other things which inductions are done for. So sorry, I'm getting on a hobby horse. <laughs> well, no, I'm right there with you. But what I'm trying to do is help people who maybe are not as passionate as me about <laughs> about, about things. Yes, how you ask questions? Yes. Yeah, so if someone says, you know, I've had a friend, they said fine if you don't let us induce you you know you're risking your baby's life yes now i said to her, god i don't she pushed back and didn't get induced and oh, went into labor naturally and was in an amazing birth but i said to her god that's tough to have a medical professional and it happens. say that to now, you please we are not saying that all medical professionals behave like that there are wonderful people who explain things properly and go way beyond the hours of work that they're paid for to support women. Comments I get back are ones where it didn't work so well and they're not infrequent. So it's a pretty so large how number. Does someone then who's listening who thinks, yes, I want a positive birth, who wouldn't want that? Yes, they all but do. Everyone wants that. But then I'll see how it goes. Well, I know perfectly well how it's going to go if that's the attitude. Well, that's the prep that we, we've yes. we'll, we'll talk about that again. But I just want if someone wants this positive birth, but they maybe are under some pressure when they get to hospital. Be. Oh, and they will be because we the everybody, everybody from 40 weeks is under pressure. How do we talk to those professionals? So there's in the book, you give brilliant guidelines, but can you just share some of that knowledge and wisdom? Well, I think when I teach a group of couples, I can almost see them looking at me with disbelief. In the first place, they're thinking, I'm sure that doesn't really happen. Well, it does most of the time. In the second place, they're thinking, well, we're first-time mums. What do we do about it? We don't want to antagonise our caregivers. They might take it out on us. And the answer is you get well-informed, like you did, educated information, and you ask polite questions. Because the legal situation is that a pregnant woman is allowed to do whatever she likes. It's not a matter of what somebody allows her to do. It's a matter of what she allows them to do for her or to her or with her. It is she that does the allowing, not her caregivers. And very frequently, just as you said... The lever that will be applied is it's best for your baby. In which case, a woman will do anything. She'll walk through fire if you told her to. Of course. Oh, well, I had to because they said the baby was in distress. Which may be true, because you can't look at a case but you're not actually there with the notes. And I think the real question is not, did she need a caesarean? But what got her to the point that a caesarean is necessary? So can you talk to us about the cascade of interventions? I asked my audience earlier what they wanted specifically to hear from you about, and a lot of people said 
cesareans <laughs> how do we use these tools in yes. cesareans planned and can you explain what cascade of interventions the is? most important thing of all the most important thing of all which you did and i'm hugely impressed because most people don't is not tell anybody the due date that's when the cascade starts <laughs> okay tell us about that <laughs> i think it really is the most important thing you do in pregnancy the problems arise before labor starts of how you set yourself up because of the stress and you get stress from three areas you get stress from yourself our language says stress but baby's late late for what poor little thing because i've been born and we're, we're labeling them late. yeah i've heard of adults who said oh i was late being born and i've been late all my life so presumably every time they was late their mother told them they were always late so you're late i'm overdue so where does this due date come from there was research, such as it was, done on about 100, no, less than 100 German women 100 years ago. There's also a feeling that it might have something to do with Aristotle, but he felt that 10 moons, which is 10 times 4 weeks, is an astrologically significant length of time. But we can't do the research now because so many labours are induced that you can't find out how long the natural length of labour is, but we think... We think it's somewhere between 41 and 41 and a half weeks. And that's when people, people are being induced. Because I always thought it was 40 weeks. So we think it's somewhere, the natural window is between oh, yes. 41. 40 weeks. It's not 100% accurate, but something like 10% of women give birth before 40 weeks. About 4 or 5%, like you, give birth on the date. About 85% give birth beyond 40 weeks. That is so helpful for people to hear. It's criminal that what people and what women are told. It really is. But it doesn't alter the fact. And our language... So, was, so what we want women who might be pregnant or pregnant friends to spread is you are up until when? 40... How many weeks? You are 43, 44? Why put a limit on it? Why put a date on it? Because there's no danger. No. The What's M the study then around if you go beyond 44 weeks, there's an increased risk of stillbirth? Did you mean 44? Yeah. People usually say 42, which is why I questioned whether... Oh, no, because I think, I think there's a study I read about 44 weeks. Well, the latest Embrace figures, which is an audit, not research, but it's an audit of all the births in this country, all three quarters of a million of them, for the last two years has shown a decrease in stillbirth after 42 weeks. Decrease. Decrease, okay. Now, a lot of people question that, partly because people always question things which are less medicalised. They were questioning optimal cord clamping for a long time before it went in. They questioned for 17 years whether x-rays were good for unborn babies before they dropped doing them. You see, you take an isolated figure, it always begs more questions. Mm. We don't know which of the births after about 41 weeks were induced. That could have had a significant impact on the stillbirth rate. We don't know. But what when we get figures out, and people have asked Embrace to include it in future, it doesn't say mode of onset of labour. I see. But what we want women listening to think about is this window, which is what you talk about, isn't it? The World a Health month, Organization. A month window. It's more than that. The World Health Organization says anything between 37 and 42 weeks is average. But women these days feel terribly proud of themselves if they withstand the pressure. I'm not going to agree to a, an induction until 42 weeks. Well, you know, some people aren't average. B, 
big mothers so have big 42 babies. weeks is average. It's really important for people That's, to hear. You know, just because something's out of sight, be average. Yeah. The best analogy, I think, is picking fruit. If I pick a blackberry before it's quite ripe, I have to pull it off the twig and it tastes bitter. Two weeks before it's ripe, it's sort of a bit easier to pull it off the twig and it's a bit sharp, but it's okay. When it's ripe, it comes up in your fingers and it tastes delicious. And some blackberries take longer. We put a lovely thing on Instagram with pictures of blackberries a couple of weeks ago. And the reception it got was phenomenal. But it's true. So if someone is in that sort of 42, 43 weeks, how would you suggest that they manage their fear that might be coming up around well, that? Hopefully they've done a KG hypnobirthing course. There will be they can fear. get one of our audios. Yeah. I would suggest, you see, this is the only time in your life when you get given this bonus. It is a few days, particularly with your first baby, I mean, second, you're pretty busy. Yeah. But with your first baby, which is when it's most significant, you have nothing particular planned. You know, you've not got to go out to work. You're not going on holiday. You're not... Nothing. You've got a bonus couple of weeks. So what you do with your bonus is you fix up a schedule in it. And you fix up a schedule of one thing each day, which you really love doing. You meet a friend for coffee. You go window shopping. If it's a weekend, maybe you go out for a drive in the country and have lunch in a country pub, have a little stroll just in the park. But every day you've got a programme written out and arranged during your pregnancy. You might go for a facial. You might go for reflexology, not from a point of trying to make the baby come, but from a point of it's just nice. It doesn't have to be expensive things. I mean, if you can afford a massage and things, it's wonderful. But you can get in a takeaway and have a movie date at home with your partner. All these wonderful things, all those movies that you never quite had time to watch, as long as they're happy ones. You don't want scary ones exploited no. in your pregnancy. But I would love it, and I think some do, if every woman I teach has this schedule of lovely things, one a day. I'm going to do that this time. I didn't do that last no, time. No, I didn't think of it until about six months ago. <laughs> and then you're quite disappointed if the baby arrives before you've finished your schedule. It's a great idea. It's such a nice reframe yes. of a time which, for a lot of mums I know, can be one great thing to that be we sure is that people sometimes say there's only one person who knows the due date, and that's the baby, and they're not letting on. And the other is that all babies are born on their birthday. Hmm. A colleague of mine... A lovely midwife called Lisa Thompson. She's one of our trainers. She was at her home birth, and it was about the sixth baby. And the baby was born at night, as subsequent babies very often are. Mum's body and mine somehow knows. As the morning came, the children woke up, and one by one, little heads popped round the door. She said it was like the sound of music. And the biggest girl came in and said, I'm going to make a birthday cake for the baby. And the littlest two-year-old said, oh, was the baby born on its birthday? Oh, that's so sweet. We sort of forget that that's what babies tend to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about cascade of interventions, yes. and you said it often starts with you this bet. stress. The stress. So but what happens next? Because I, I, I think Well, it's, it's three stresses. One that women put on themselves. Yeah. One that all their friends and relations do. Yeah. Because from 40 weeks and one day, they all call. So you tell your friends and relations at least two weeks later. Great or, tip. Uh, you must do. It's absolutely essential. Somebody said to us, 
but do you mean we should lie to our friends, our nearest and dearest? And we said, no, but due date is a lie. It is, it's an absolute lie. And most due dates which are given by a scan, the majority are earlier than the one a woman worked out herself from her last period. Yes, because everyone's cycle is different and they start it from the... Yes, it is. It is, the majority. I often ask that question in class. And of course it's not the same for everybody, but for the majority, it's always your due date is before the one you worked out yourself. And then you get stress from your medical caregivers. Right. First stress is wanting to sweep. Is a sweep an intervention? Yes, it's an induction. Because it's trying to make a baby come before it's ready. That's the definition of an induction. Now... I'm very well aware, as midwives will often point out to me, that most women are screaming for a sweep at 37. Why can't I have my sweep? I'm 40 weeks, I want to be induced. Because they're not well informed. They would never ask. And afterwards, there are people who will say, if only I'd known. What do you wish they'd known? The implications of a sweep. Tell us what they are. About one in eight sweeps work, which means the baby is born within 48 hours. And, of course, some of those babies might have been born within that time frame. Anyway, anyway, we don't know. The others, a lot of them, their niggly pains, which maybe keep her awake at night, stop her relaxing, and then stop. And then she might go into labour three days later, exhausted because she hasn't slept. And the outcome of a sweep in terms of caesareans and assisted deliveries, forceps and a vacuum extraction, are similar the outcome of a medicalised induction of labour. So it is not a benign little intervention. Women need to think about these things carefully, research. I think the best book out at the moment is a little book which is easy to read and packed with good, proper information and facts called Why Induction Matters. Brilliant little book. I recommend it to all my mums. Okay, we'll link that so that people can see that. Yes, it's by Rachel Reed. So let's keep going with this track of cascade of interventions because this is really important. So sometimes a woman will agree to a sweep because the midwife says, well, if we do a sweep today, it could save you from an induction next week, which is completely illogical. In the first place, the baby might arrive before next week anyway. And in the second place, if it hadn't, and she then decided she wanted a sweep, she could have it then before the induction. And then they'll say, I'll just make the appointment for your induction. You don't have to go. Then it's hanging over her like the sword of Damocles and increasing her stress. The system that we have in this country and probably worldwide is designed to heap stress onto pregnant women. And what does stress do? Produces adrenaline. When we produce adrenaline, we don't produce oxytocin. So labour doesn't start, you know, yeah. that well, stops labour starting. starting. So we're trying to get labour to start with these interventions that's causing the stress that's actually stopping it starting naturally. Yes. I get plenty of women calling me up saying, I've tried everything, what shall I do? Well, the fact that she uses the word try implies stress. You know, this goes back to your point, doesn't it, around fear? Because mm. people have the fear around these dates, 42 So all I can say to her at that stage is, well, I'm not going to suggest more things which just pile on more stress. So when she says that to me, I say, well, what do you feel like doing? Nice day? You know, it's so interesting because everyone talks about this, don't they? Curries, sex. No, 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 no. Like all that sort of stuff. It's trying to make a baby. Yeah, that's what I mean. Everyone, everyone does it. We even have it in our folder only because people ask. And when I give it to them, I say, 
What I would really like you to do is tear this out and never go there again. But so many people have asked that I've put them there and I know they will do it. Yeah. It's not just that it's a waste of time. It's harmful because it signifies a state of mind which is putting her in the wrong mental, hormonal, muscular place. So let's carry on. So now she she still hasn't gone into labour naturally and an induction is booked. Talk to us about induction, what it is. It's interesting that you said it was booked. Well, because they book them in, don't they? I mean, I don't know. I've not had this experience. You didn't say an induction was offered, which is what the guidelines say. You didn't even say an induction is proposed you said it's booked well this is because my friends that talk to oh, me yes, say they booked right. me in for an induction quite yes you're right i mean that's illegal nothing can be done to our bodies without informed consent the consent has been given but never informed every pregnant woman has illegal procedures because she didn't give informed consent Interesting. Okay, so tell us about induction. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> induction, what do you want to know about it? Well, you know, if someone has an experience of induction or hasn't, what is it and what are the impacts? The reason for induction is to try to make a baby come that wasn't going to come on its own. Synthetic oxytocin, is that right? Not, not entirely. Okay, that's tell us. part of it. You can tell if a baby's nearly ready to come by the Bishop's score, which assesses the position of a baby, the position of the cervix, the softness of the cervix. If the bishop's score says the baby is nearly ready, it seems to me, what on earth do you want to induce it for? Because it's going to come anyway. I've never heard that bishop's score. Oh, you? Oh, it's, it's for about six things that are assessed. It's the position of the cervix, the texture of the cervix. And a midwife will do that. Oh, yes. If the bishop's score is not favourable, the baby is not planning to come any time soon, therefore an induction is likely to be ineffective or at least long and painful and it just seems to me sort of strange but anyway what an induction consists of the first thing is generally putting prostaglandin generally a pessary these days on the cervix you insert it into the vagina like a tampon and prostaglandin is the hormone which helps to soften the cervix because the cervix is a chunky muscle at the base of the well, by definition, it's the neck. Cervix means neck, doesn't it? Of the uterus. And it needs to be a strong muscle because it's held the baby in for 40 weeks. Plainly, in order for the baby to get out, that muscle needs to get out of the way, which is the biggest part of labour, is that happening? So the prostaglandin gel is said to soften the cervix. The risk is that it can soften it too quickly. You can get a rupture of the uterus, which is actually, I believe, more likely than in a in a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean. But nobody ever tells you that there's any risks attached to it. Which is, it's not painful at all. It can start quite powerful surges quite quickly, contractions quite quickly. And that's what I've heard from friends that have had it, that the labours were more abrupt, intense and abrupt. And from there, they needed it. Or it can be totally ineffective. Interesting. Because it's just producing a hormone which is designed to soften the cervix. And then you can have that done two or three times and you wait in between to see if there's a result. Once you're on this path, you are legally entitled, physically, morally, medically, at any time to stop it. But it's treated as if this is a package and you carry on through. I've never known anybody to say, thank you, I've had enough, I'd rather stop now. The next thing that is done is breaking the waters because that can help the baby drop. 
and it can get labour started. It could also cause a prolapse of a cord if the cord came out with the fluid too quickly. It can cause contractions to start quite suddenly. And as soon as you've broken the waters, there is a risk of infection because the baby's no longer in a sealed environment. So once you've done that, and the body's not naturally producing its contractions, you have to make it. And that's when the synthetic oxytocin comes in. Right. People call it oxytocin. It's not. It's a drug which acts on the body in a similar way to natural oxytocin. So is, is the labour that I would have had, where I had no intervention, different to the labour that someone would have who'd had that synthetic oxytocin? Yes, because the contractions come on more suddenly and they're more powerful and painful. Right. Even the guidelines, the national guidelines say... And I give it to all the mums I teach because they ought to know that induction of labour has a large impact on the birth experience of women and their babies and so needs to be clinically justified. Now, is being 42 weeks clinical justification? That's a question for every individual mother. It may be more painful and is less efficient than spontaneous labour. And then it says epidural analgesia is more likely to be needed, and there's a bit I've left out because I sidetracked in the middle, but it certainly says it's longer and less, longer, more painful and less efficient. And until a woman's experienced that, she doesn't really know what that means. And what's the impact then? So I've read a study that I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head around the epidural rate linked to induction rate. Oh, yes. Well, perfectly reasonably. Because it's more painful. Oh, yes. Because... A woman who has done a KG hypnobirthing class can deal with it with what she's learned. But if it's a very long labour because her body wasn't ready, there comes a point she needs a rest. Of course. She could ask to be taken off a drip. Goodness only knows what would happen if she asked that, and she's entitled to. I've never known a woman do it. But the other thing she can say is, please give me an epidural, which many, many women with an induced labour do. Now, the actual effect of the induction, it's not that painful a procedure, You can cope with it, but the effect of the epidural are quite profound because it slows everything down. Now, this is an important point because so many women say that they want an epidural, they needed it for the pain relief. Of course they did. Who weren't induced as well. Yes, well, they had done hypnobirthing. So tell us us about the impact of... People who come to my classes will sometimes say, if I do hypnobirthing, am I allowed pain relief? The answer is, well, of course you are but you just might find you don't need it. It's not this or that. That would be crazy. That would be wrong. What I learned from my hypnobirthing is that it supported me pre, during and post. It it was about a mindset. Yes. As much as it was about the type of birth that I was going to have. Mindset tends to produce a type of birth. Exactly. But the epidural, in the first place, once a woman is on the synthetic oxytocin drip, She has the drip in her arm, the cannula in her arm. Then she has monitors strapped to her abdomen because the contractions are more powerful, so they want to make sure the baby's okay and his heart is going properly. So she's got that. And those are attached, in general, to an electrical monitor, a screen, so the medics can see what's going on, absolutely reasonably under the circumstances. This means she can't get into a birthing pool. There is remote monitoring these days, but... Probably not half our hospitals have it yet, and it's expensive. Getting into a pool is said to be 50 or 60% relieves any pain there is. That was my experience. Yes. I thought, 
I imagine this is what an epidural feels like when I got into the pool because all the pain went. Yes, we say exactly. So she's now got a kangaroo in the arm, monitors on her abdomen, then she wants an epidural. So when she has a tube in her back, which she has to sit still for for quite some time, which can be quite difficult, and because she can't feel very well, she tends to have a catheter to empty her bladder because she can't feel when she has to do it herself. So she is now attached to four different machines, for want of a letter bird. It's difficult to feel relaxed, to get into a good position. Yeah. Almost the impossible. The cortisol's probably flowing, isn't it? Oh, yes. That's stress so. hormone. And... This skill of an anaesthetist applying an epidural to me is truly remarkable. And they would give as small an epidural as possible, they're hoping that it is worn off before she needs to push her baby out. Oh, and the fact that she can't feel and that it slows things down, they will up the strength of the synthetic oxytocin. So it's more pressure on the baby. But they will try to do it so that it's worn off before she needs to give birth to the baby. So she can feel... But there will inevitably, however skillful, will be a residue in the system. So she cannot push her baby out, for want of a better term, as efficiently. And therefore, she is twice as likely to need help in form of a cesarean and three times as likely to need help in terms of forceps. So the actual procedure of the induction is not the point, it's the repercussions of it. And that's the point I wanted to get across here, not to be scaring anyone, but when I got this information, it profoundly changed how I wanted to birth, yes, because I understood this phrase, the cascade of interventions, mm. and it made total sense to me. Mm. And I believed everything in your book, but I did go and then read all the original Quite studies, which all backed it up. Please so don't believe anything in my book. <laughs> Check it out. Well, I did. Yes, yeah, um, <laughs> So what I want to talk about now is to come on to the positive. Could I just... Finish off about synthetic oxytocin. Yes. Once it's in the body, the body doesn't produce natural oxytocin. So after the birth, when the body naturally produces a peak of oxytocin and other hormones, a sort of cocktail of hormones to welcome a baby into the world, it doesn't do it. So it needs synthetic oxytocin to get the placenta out. Which is the injection also, in the thigh. Yes. Yeah. Oxytocin naturally is produced in the pituitary gland in the brain yes. and filters through into the system. Synthetic oxytocin is injected into the system and doesn't cross the mother's blood-brain barrier. So it doesn't have the effect of triggering hormones in the brain. We think it may cross the baby's blood-brain barrier. We do not know the effect of the hormonal response on the baby of that. So it's significant. Okay. And that, again, I think it's important to say, this isn't to scare anyone or to... This is information. Yes. And please we, check it out. Yeah, we all need to know Because I have not got this. every statistic in my head. Yeah, um, but we all need to know this information in order yes. to have... Make a sensible decision. ...an empowered, which is the word that I keep coming back to yes. with Hypnic Birthing, in order to make these empowered choices. <laughs> so let's talk then about how different and how you can use the tools of hypnobirthing in order to manage some of these things that happen, particularly... I don't think they happen, you see. Well, I wanted, I wanted to ask about cesareans because my audience really wanted to ask you about this. Yes. How can they use, say for some reason, let's not go why, they're having an elective cesarean. Yes. How can they use hypnobirthing? exactly the same. Okay. Because any woman having major surgery is... Maybe not frightened, but not entirely feeling the happiest and positive in the whole of her life as she approaches surgery. 
So you use the tools exactly the same. Okay. Um, Absolutely. And, and also, I've been asked by a hospital to write a hypnosisarian book, specifically using the tools for cesareans, which should have been finished, I think, last May. Then it should have been finished in August. Then it should have been finished in September. I'm taking a week in Scotland next week to finish it. <laughs> so what are some of the things in that book that the audience need well, to exactly hear exactly the same as in their hypnobirthing. But slightly different, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but slightly different. But the breathing Positive would be thing. different, wouldn't it? Because would no. you do your up-breathing and your down-breathing? Yeah, and up-breathing is wonderful for any circumstance. Okay. You okay. don't need the down-breathing because the baby's not coming out through the birth canal. Okay. The breathing is similar and... Positive statements, slightly different positive statements, of course, because it's not going to be things like, my baby is born naturally and drug-free or anything like that. It's going to be born, I give my baby the best possible birth. I bond with my baby easily after birth and that sort of thing. So focusing on the positives and some relaxations like we have in hypnobirthing, which are focused towards the choices I made for the birth of my baby. The difference that I hear from friends who have done hypnobirthing and not done hypnobirthing, mm-hmm. see if you agree with this, I'm sure you will, is that <laughs> those that have had some interventions, things have gone quote-unquote wrong, but they've been able to use their hypnobirthing and they've said to me, I felt really calm and empowered mm-hmm. throughout. That's Even wonderful. That's the whole purpose. Yes. You see, the methods do vary and there are some methods, which I obviously won't name, where if a woman hasn't given her baby the perfect birth, she feels guilty, whatever that may be in her, in her view. This is such Now, we work thing. so hard in the course, but aren't we lucky to live in a society where all this support is available to us? Caesareans, inductions, forceps, the lot. It can save the life of a baby just before anybody says, ah, oh, but it can save the life of a baby. Well, of course it can. And... We stress that in our KGH, KG hypnobirthing class. And we give people tools. The trouble is, those things are overused these days. Even the World Health Organization says the medicalization of birth has gone too far and it's time the pendulum swung back. And I doubt that there's anybody who would disagree with that. For sure. Um, But I think this is such an important point because there might be people listening kicking themselves that they didn't do hypnobirthing. That's terrible. So what would you say to the mother? (laughs) (laughs) What would you say to the mother who, you know, because birth trauma is a huge It's terrible. I was speaking to an obstetrician who was doing research into it today. Yes. Well, I've had someone on the podcast, an incredible preeminent doctor around birth trauma. Yes. So what would you say with your angle on someone who feels guilty, traumatised by their birth? Well, our job is more prevention rather than dealing with it after the event. I simply don't have time to do both, though hypnotherapy would be enormously effective. I think it is so rare. I can only think of one person I felt. I mean, not everybody has a two hours drug-free, pain-free labour, but... That would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) We knew the exact formula. The biggest part of the formula is practising. But I often get people coming to me who've had a difficult birth for the first time and I get teachers coming to me. I say, God, this mother, she's petrified. She's got extreme tocophobia. What shall I do for her? And my answer is always do the course. If at the end of it, we find we need something extra, come back to me and we'll talk it through and do something. But nobody as yet has ever come back to me. And, and second time mums who've had a really bad experience the first time can hardly believe that spending a couple of days learning about a few words actually going to physically make that difference well that's and then what... it 
does, and they're the people who really understand. Well, that's what people say have said to me. Does it actually work? Because it can feel like such a. They can't believe it. No, because we're so programmed. I have to get statistics, and I haven't. It's just time. What are some of the common objections that you hear? Well, the things that midwives don't like. Midwives say, I'm not allowed to talk to a mother, which is not true because we know, and when it's explained properly, they completely understand. But when you talk, it disturbs the neocortex, produces adrenaline, inhibits oxytocin. But sometimes that hasn't been explained to them. What do people not like about hypnobirthing? Oh, you feel, but you feel guilty if you haven't had the perfect birth. I think that's the most one. Interesting. Which is terrible. Well, we, is do, we do hypnobirthing to get the perfect birth. Whereas I would say... And it's only for low-risk women. Well, I would say I did it partly because I wanted to get rid of the fear, but also I had this sense that if things didn't go perfectly, it would support me. I think you're fairly unique, actually. I don't think the majority of women think that way. I wish they did, because it's true. Well, I think because I've had so much experience of other therapies and yes. NLP and I was a trained coach so I understood yes. mindset yes so this to me was like you know I just yes. lapped it up yes I think that helped me probably for sure but I think it's a feeling of guilt and that it's only for low-risk women yes and we work very hard our course there's lots in it to point out how wonderful all these things are if we need them the problem arises because they're overused And also, when we do talk about something like, for example, induction of labour, which is important to talk about because so many women are induced, at the end of that section, we do the most beautiful relaxation to release fear and build confidence. So we can put those fears to rest straight away Mm. um, before we've had time to get old. Because fear is so powerful. That's really what I would say hypnobirthing is at its core for me. My experience of it was fear release and I felt this innate confidence in myself and my body you see you can do that quite quickly in quite a short course but you also need to understand the system so that nobody is in a position of destroying that confidence yes and that is really important well that is why I made the the investment into the independent because she didn't do that but also the important thing I would say is practice so Guy oh, yes. and I were, luckily guys totally loves it too, and we were on our homework. We were like A-grade students yes. every day. And please, for people not listening, this is only 10 or 15 minutes a day. Oh, yeah, it was it's not it? two hours no, a day. No, 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 like no, but every day. And it's quite would, simple and it's clearly defined. It's really nice. Like, Guy would read me a little meditation to get me to sleep. He's doing it now because I'm 33 weeks. Wonderful. And it's lovely. It's just a really nice way to prepare yes. for labour and I genuinely feel no fear and I'm absolutely sure it brings a couple closer together you can see it happening and also it helps a father bond with his child because he knows he's been an important part in how that baby enters the world Mm. and that's wonderful because most fathers stand around wishing they could do something useful and quite frankly being pretty useless yes yes <laughs> well we've spoken for nearly an hour i mean i think sorry. i could speak to you probably for yes, days this is such a passion of mine i have yes. to say but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think it's super important for my very briefly to know? Well, i was starting at the beginning the four things that make hypnobirthing and particularly kg hypnobirthing different one is the work to release fear yeah two we've also mentioned which is a clearly, simply defined, codified practice. One simple sheet that you can refer to. That's easy. The practices that you have to do every day, yeah. 
Three is the work we do, and that is fairly unique, in educating people how to navigate the system. That is hugely important. By the system, you mean midwives, hospitals, appointments? Yes, it is a yeah. system. It has to be. It's three quarters of a million people every year. It's not that anybody's nasty. Yeah. It's just the We've system. We've talked about some of that, haven't we? A little bit, yeah. yes. It was a false thing, but it was a moment. I can't remember what it was, so I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of every podcast, I always ask the same question, which is, if you could give just one gift to mm. all the mums, you know, mums, before their mums, you know, pregnant women and mothers, what would that gift be? Is this a gift for before birth? It can be whatever you want. Oh, I would say forget the due date. Wow. It sounds so simple, but they're so prevalent and endemic in our thinking. Wow, okay. I think for you, you know, with all your knowledge and years of wisdom experience to give that as your one gift is important <laughs> and profound for people to hear. Well, I hope they'll do it. I'm so happy if they do. Oh, thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.